great confidence as we come before you this morning to do these very things, for you are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords and capable of delivering us from all evil, Lord. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonders of your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, where we're going to continue our study in this book that we had paused for Advent. And this morning we come to Romans chapter 13, where we'll look at the first seven verses. So Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good." But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well, again, we're we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. If you haven't been with us, we've been uh, last year kind of making our way through uh, this uh, remarkable book that Paul has written. And just by way of recap, I mean, Romans is a letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome. It's not a church that he's ever visited. So it seems that he is writing in preparation of a visit to let them know specifically what it is that he teaches. And so he walks through what he's teaching specifically about the nature of the gospel. And in chapters 1 through 11, that's what he's unfolding, you know, kind of the, the, the power of God for salvation. This is how it works. This is how the mercy of God unfolds uh, to save those whom God has deemed to be saved. And then as we get to chapter 12, it kind of turns the corner a little bit. We go from a time of orthodoxy to a time of orthopraxy. If this is therefore true about the nature of the gospel and about the nature of God's salvation, therefore this is what you must do. This is how you are to live in light of this mercy that God has poured out on you in such abundance. So that's where we are in, this, in chapter 13. It's part of that process of unpacking if the gospel is true. Since we have been recipients of the mercy of God, therefore we are to live in such a way. So this uh, week we come to an understanding in light of that is what exactly is our relationship uh, to the state? What is our relationship to the, the governing authorities? Uh, for it's a, that's, a, that's a challenging thing to do that. It, is, it is, seems to be a universal inclination that we disdain or are skeptical of governing authorities. I mean, if you think about 
the fact that when you start out growing up in your household, you're skeptical of your parents. When you get a job out of college, you are skeptical of all those management executives that are over you. I mean, I remember hearing the water cooler talk. That's all they all want to talk about is, golly, I can't believe they instituted this policy or they're spending money on this or they're doing that or they bought this company or did that. So there's this sense in which there is this universal skepticism and disdain for governing authorities. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we certainly see that there is corruption at the levels that are governing over us. We, we, are, we are keen to see those mistakes that they make. Uh, and at the best, they're just mistakes. At the worst, they are utterly and completely corrupt. I mean, you, there, there's a reason why we would call, for example, Washington, D.C., the swamp, and then we want it to be drained, because we see the corruption going on in places like that. And, uh, but, but we have to be careful, because our inclination is to think, because it's corrupt, therefore we disdain it, therefore we should be skeptical of it, therefore we should perhaps ignore it. But I think there's a more foundational reason as to why we disdain governing authorities. And it's not because of their corruption, it's because of our corruption. Because we ourselves don't want anyone over us. Again, this is why I think even as going back to children, children are rebelling against their parents, not because their parents are necessarily corrupt or don't love them, but because they want to be on their own. Well, this was romanticized by that famous poem by W.E. Henley, Invictus. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we like to cling to that as the reason why we want to have no governing authorities. We want to be in control of our destiny without anyone steering or controlling our path. And that's the romantic way to say it. There's a more blunt way to say it, and Isaiah says it. He just simply says, each of us have gone our own way. Each of us have gone astray. Each of us have gone our own way. The reality is, we've been throwing off the authorities over us since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against a God who had absolutely no corruption or error or unwisdom about Him. He is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the embodiment of, of, of mercy. He is the embodiment of authority. And even in that state, without any corruption, it was in the nature of Adam and Eve to want to go their own way. And ever since then, we've been dealing with this inherited reality of wanting to rebel against the governing authorities that are over us. So it's not without need that Paul would write in such a way that you as believers, as followers of God, in view of God's mercy, are to do something that seems to run contrary to your very nature, and that is you are to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this is probably not a very fun message to hear. I don't know, but, but it's the reality. This is where we are as believers. You are called to be different from the world. And one of the ways that you show yourself to be different from the world is that you are willingly submitting yourself to the governing authorities over you. Now, we're going to talk about what does that look like exactly as we unpack this passage a little bit because I know that brings a lot of questions uh, when we think about it. So, we'll, we're going to ask some questions about this text that hopefully will help us to see what this exactly looks like. We'll ask, well, why should we be doing this? We'll ask, what does it look like to be doing this? When are we to do this? And finally, how are we to do this? So, as we go through those questions, I hope that we'll come up with some good answers 
that makes sense of this challenge to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. First of all, the important question is, well, why? Why are we to submit ourselves to the governing authorities? And the answer is very simple. It starts out in verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, here's the reason, there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God, he starts out. And those that exist, those authorities, that is, that exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, this is our logic skills at worst, is resisting God. So that's the reason. It's pretty simple. All the, I mean, the principle at work here is that all authority, all authority is derived ultimately from God's authority. All authority is derived from God Himself. I mean, think about it. Even Jesus, as He's standing on trial before Pilate, even Him says in John 19, verse 11, you would have no authority over me, Pilate, that is, at all, unless it had been given to you from above. So the state, just as the church, is instituted by God to be in authority over us. Their authority, let me just say it again, comes from God's authority. So that's the theological reason why we are to submit to our authorities. And it is why I think verse 5 says it this way, that it is for the sake of conscience that we submit. For the sake of conscience, we submit because the theological reason why we submit to our authorities is because their authority is derived from God's authority itself. It is part of our Christian duty to the Lord to submit to our governing authorities. Now, we have to press that a little bit. For what does that actually look like? Are we to obey simply without question? No matter what they tell us to do? No matter where they're pushing us to go? What if the authorities require something of me that seems wrong? What do we do then? I think that's an important question, for we do see that happen often throughout history of governments becoming oppressive, of governments requiring things that perhaps we should not follow. So we need to dig a little deeper to understand this submission to the governing authorities. So we're going to ask the question, what? What? Specifically, what? did God give the governing authorities authority to do? What does He give them authority to do? And to answer that, I want to invite you back to look in verse 3 and following. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive His approval. For He is God's servant for your good." But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, one thing that you see multiple times repeated in this text is that the, the, the governing authorities are called servants of God. They're called servants of God or ministers of God. That's, just, that's a remarkable phrase that Paul would use about the governing authorities. They are servants of God. That term servant is the same term that he uses for what we would call the deacons in the church. 
These are, these are ministers that have been instituted by God to serve you, and specifically says, for your good. They are servants of God that have been appointed to govern for your good, for your good. So, here's the, this is the context of what we're talking about. And I think just as we stop right there and just let this sink in a little bit and check our common attitude with regard to how we think about the state, for it is very easy to drift into the criticizing of the state. I mean, that seems to be a favorite hobby of everybody, universal. We're complaining about the president or the vice president or the senate or the congress or our governor or our representatives we're, or, or, the, or the police that are over us. We always seem to be complaining about them. And what this says is we have to recognize that they have been appointed as servants for your good by God Himself. So, do they do that? Do they do things that are for our good? Now, this is what's interesting. The very fact that we complain about them, there is implicit in that this idea that we understand that they exist for our good. So, when we complain about them because there's some protest going on here or there with regard to something the government is doing, why does that protest happening at all? If not, they have this expectation that the government is supposed to be doing stuff in a way that brings justice and promotes our good. So, when we see that not happening, it rises a protest, but the only reason that would ever happen is because we intuitively know that the whole reason they exist is for our good, and they do a lot of good. I think they do a lot more good than we give them credit to do. We tend to focus on the bad things. We tend to focus on the things that we perhaps disagree with, and we tend to gloss over all the things that they're actually doing, and we take them for granted. I mean, think about what our government is doing in terms of for our good, in legislating laws that help us facilitate, for example, travel. We can go from state to state on an infrastructure that has been secured by our governing authorities. We can conduct business by the infrastructure of, of, of uh, the laws that help regulate how business operates. We can do so many of these things because the government is doing things effectively for our good. Think about how the, the government seeks to protect us from foreign threats, securing our borders. Now, I know that's in the controversy a lot because perhaps we expect them to do things differently than they're doing them, but there is some degree when, when that is happening. And we can take for granted how it is happening and just complain about the way that we wish it were happening, but the reality is there are things that are happening. And as Christians who recognize that their authority is derived from God, we are set free from purely complaining and appreciating the good things that they are doing, for they are in existence for our good, point, appointed by the very authority of God Himself. So, for this reason, he says in verses 6 and 7, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I mean, this is a big challenge. I know Sometimes it's easy to say this if you're, you're the candidate you voted for is in office, perhaps it's easier to say this, but when your candidate's not in office, you don't want to say this. But this goes either way. And to think that, to think that 
We can be depended upon when we choose to submit to our governing authorities based on whether or not we voted for them is ludicrous. That's just a way of going out from underneath the authority that God has appointed. That's just another way of going your own way. So this whole idea of so-and-so is not my president, whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump, is a violation of this whole idea that that authority is derived from the Lord. So I think the, the first big lesson for us as Christians are we need to give them the respect and honor that is owed to them because they're only there because God has instituted this for our good. By that alone, we should be challenged and rebuked as believers in the Lord on the way we treat our government, the way we respond to our government, the attitude we have towards our government. And I'll be the first one to confess, I have a lot of repenting to do in that regard. You know, Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Again, he uses the term servants. He uses the term ministers. Again, the same word that we use for our own office of deacon that exists for service. But there's another part of that too, he says in verse 3. I want to focus on the idea that they are the ones who bear the sword. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So I think this would point to kind of the the aspect of the governing uh, role in their policing, the policing of people. They're going about stopping crime. And how, how thankful are we that we have police that exist to go about and arrest people who have done crimes, to preserve the safety of society. I know protests go up because they think there's an injustice that they're perhaps, tar- you know, some people targeted more than others, but the reality is they are doing their job of policing people who are doing bad things. You do a bad thing, you should be afraid, and that's what he's saying here. So there is a sense in an- another aspect of the way they serve us in that they are going after crime to protect and create a safe society. But I think there's more to it than even that. We often want to read these texts in isolation from one another, and we can't, we can't necessarily do that. The chapter divisions, for example, are arbitrary. They weren't, they weren't broken up. When Paul wrote the letter, he didn't write, oh, this is chapter 1, this is chapter 2. He just wrote a letter. And later on, when people wanted to reference it, they broke it up and, and gave it verse by verse so they could make an easier reference of things. But as you start in, in chapter 12 and you look at one of the things that he says towards the end of chapter 12, right before chapter 13, he says something very important about the way we are to live, and he says, do not take vengeance on someone who has wronged you. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You are to love them. This is what he says specifically. Beloved, starting verse 19 of the previous chapter, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. How is it that you are to, to uh, um, how is it that you are to treat your enemy in such a way? 
uh, by feeding him when he's hungry or giving him something to drink when he's thirsty. How can you do that when there is injustice left unchecked? That's the whole idea. God says, don't repay them. That's, that's my job. It belongs to me. And in the very next chapter, he goes on to say, here I've instituted authorities for the purpose of avenging my wrath. So, it, I, I know we tend, to, we tend to think that, okay, well, in the end, there is going to be a day of judgment, and then all the, the wrong things are going to be made right. And that is true. And that is the grand, you could say, time of judgment. But there is long before that, this thing that God has put in place for the sake of taking care of injustice. So, when we see people caught when they do wrong things and brought to trial and judged and sentenced in such a way, that is meant to alleviate the person who was wronged. That is meant to bring justice to the person who is hurting and suffering, setting them free from trying to extract it and get it themselves. Now, I know they don't do that perfectly. They, they often miss, uh, uh, they get it wrong in their sentencing, or they don't find the people who did the crimes, and therefore we would be tempted to think that they go unchecked. And that's where we have to remember, yes, God is the God of vengeance, and there is a day of coming in the end when His final justice will come about where everything that was whispered in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. Nothing will be left unexposed or unaccounted for. You know, even as we go and read the, the books or, or read the end of Revelation, he talks about the books are open. He's talking about the ledger books, which have kept track of all the good and bad that you have done in your lifetime. Everything is written in those ledgers, and it's all going to be called to account on that day. So, when we see justice happening here now, I think the best way to think of it is this is a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the ultimate judgment and justice that God will one day mete out. It's not perfect now, but it's certainly pointing us to the fact, reminding us of the fact that God is just, that He will bring justice to those who have committed wrongs, and it's a serious judgment. So, we're reminded of all those things. So, I think so far what we've learned as God's people are one, the attitude that we are to have to our government. We owe them respect. We need to look at them as ministers and servants of God. And secondly, the reason we can be set free to love our enemies is because God has reserved judgment or, or justice or vengeance for Himself, and, and He's even appointed an institution on this earth here and now to be the agents of that. So, that does, again, set us free to live in such a way that we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to deal with that. The state's wielding of the sword reminds us of, that God is a God of justice. Now, now we have to ask the important question of when. If that's, if that's the why and that's the what, well, when? When do we submit? And I think knowing why God instituted the governing authorities helps us to understand the limits of their jurisdiction if we think of it that way. For there are clearly times in history when we can argue that to obey the state is to go against the Lord. I mean, the apostles provide us in the book of Acts with a prime example in chapter 5. Uh, we read this, and when they had brought them, that is, the apostles, um, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that is the name of Jesus, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
That's such an important concept to understand. And why is it that we do that? Because all authority is derived from God. So if there's, if there's a governing authority that's saying things contrary to God, they are violating their higher-ups. If you want to think of them in the army, you have a, uh, I'm not sure the ranks, uh, what, what, you have the general and then what's the colonel under the general? Is that how it goes? Someone help me out here. That what it is. So if you have the general issue an order and the colonel violates that, orders something contrary to that to his troops, now the troops have to ask, well, who do I submit to? You know, and ultimately, they're accountable to the general and his command. The colonel is the one who violated. Now, that doesn't mean they won't face consequences. They're put in a bad situation. They're put in really a no-win situation when that happens because they're disobeying one of the authorities over them. I mean, there are times in the Old Testament where we see this happening too. And you think about uh, in, the, in the time of Daniel, you know, Daniel was one of the exiles that was carried into the, uh, to, the, uh, to, the Bab- to Babylon, and he served in the Babylonian court along with some of his, uh, some of his uh, uh, fellow Israelites. You know, we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and when they were told that at the sound of the trumpet, everyone has to bow down to, the, to this idolist statue, this gold statue that was made, and they didn't do it. And the consequence of that is they were to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And uh, they're caught, and they're brought before the king. And he uh, asks them, don't you want to have another opportunity to do it? They said, no, I'm sorry, we can't do it. And he's so angered, he has the furnace, you know, made even hotter than it was before. And he throws them in. Now, miraculously, if we know the story of Daniel, they don't die in the fire. God preserves them, in essence, commending their actions, in this case, to go against the mandate of, the, of their governing authorities. Here's a case when it does, and they're saved from it. And Daniel, a little bit later on himself, is told when there was a period of 30 days where no one was allowed to pray to anyone except the king, and Daniel continues this practice of praying three times a day to the God of Jerusalem, and he's caught. Of course, the whole thing was a trap to catch him. Um, he's thrown into the lion's den a den full of hungry lions waiting for their supper. We know that because they immediately devoured those who followed Daniel. But Daniel uh, survived the lion's den because the Bible says God closed the mouths of the lions. But as soon as he was rescued out, those that had formed the trap were ordered to go in there, and they were instantly mauled and devoured. So why was Daniel preserved? Why was Daniel saved? Well, I think God is commending His actions, in this case, to stand under the authority of God, even when it violates the governing authorities of man. But what I want you to notice is, guess who still is bearing the sword? The governing authorities. They still have the sword. The fiery furnace is still a consequence. The lion's den is still a consequence. They're very real consequences. And just because those individuals who violated it were, pers- were, uh, were saved by the Lord from those particular horrible deaths doesn't mean that everyone who violates the governing authorities because they're submitting to a higher authority is going to avoid or be saved from the sword. That's not the case. In fact, as you go and you read the book of Revelation, for example, you're reading about the souls of those who have been beheaded for their faith, you know, crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long? Till you bring justice to those, you know, who did this to us. Well, what happened to them? 
they refused to submit to the governing authorities because they were yielding to the, the higher authority. And it created problems for them. The sword literally came down and took off their heads. So, what are you called to do as a Christian? Respect your authorities. Know that they exist for your good. And for the most part, they are carrying those things out. As corrupt as we might think they, they are, the institution itself is structured in such a way that, it ult- that overall it is resulting in our good, in the promotion of a, a livable, sustainable society. But there are exceptions. There are times when they violate their own authority. They step outside of the jurisdiction of the commands that they themselves have been given to do things that are for the purpose of promoting the good of God's people. I mean, I, mean I, I think what is remarkable is that Paul is writing this letter in the time as he's writing this letter, because he's writing this under the Roman rule, most likely, if not yet, soon to be Nero ruling as the Caesar. And if you've read anything about history, you know anything about Nero, you know that this was one of the most corrupt men in, men in all of history. I mean, the things that he did to his own, you know, with his, with his mother, to his own people. I mean, it's said that he, while Rome is burning, he's playing his fiddle. Now, that's probably a figure of speech, but the reality is this was a man who was not governing for the good of all the people that were under his, his reign. And there was terrible persecution of believers at the time when Nero was reigning. In fact, tradition tells us that Nero is the one who had Paul beheaded. And so, if, 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 if Nero is representative of the governing authorities during the time that Paul is writing, and he's still writing this, it is remarkable that he's writing this. And yet, at the same time, I want to point out that Paul also did benefit from the good that the governing authorities provided. If you recall, when he went back to Jerusalem and the Jews ambushed him and brought him to trial and put him and brought him to, uh, wanted to, to have him killed, and they brought before the local Roman ruler, what did Paul do? In order to survive, well, he appeals to Caesar. This same Caesar who eventually has him beheaded he appeals to, and as a result of that appeal, what happens for him? He's preserved. I mean, there, he does receive some good from this government as corrupt as it was. And that's the how. So, if we've got the, if we've got the why, we've got the what, and we've got the when, now we have the how. How can we as believers do this? And this is where I want to put it back in the context. Remember, this is this is, a, this is part of the, the larger process that happens in, in Romans chapter 12 and following after the great explanation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. And when you go back to chapter 12, and if you have your Bibles, go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 1. At the very first phrase in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy... Therefore, in view of God's mercy, you're to live this way. In view of God's mercy, you are to live this way. I mean, think about that. Out of the mercy of God, He instituted the governing authorities of the state, even though they're not believers, perhaps, in God. They exist because of the mercy of God for your good. 
for your good. Now, how do we talk about those times when they are not doing things for our good? Even that falls under the prospect of the mercy of God. Think about the greatest example there was of injustice, that Jesus Himself, when Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate washes His hands, turns Him over to be crucified by the Roman authorities. It's, it's the, the, the greatest violation of justice in the history of, of the universe. And yet, we know that if that had not happened, and Jesus had not died on the cross, we would still be guilty before God. We would not only feel the gov- fear, need to fear the governing authorities who could kill the body, now we would need to fear God also, who not only can kill the body, but who can descend the soul to condemn the soul to hell forever. So had not the governing authorities violated their jurisdiction in that regard, God's mercy would not be known today as it is today. Now, I want to derive from that something in the sense that in the sovereignty of God, there are times when the governing authorities clearly violate their jurisdiction of what they're called to do and working for your good. And yet, somehow, some way, I can't explain how that is, but even in those instances, even in those instances, it is out of the mercy of God that He's doing something to press forward the plan of His kingdom, which is ultimately for our good. We may not know the hows or the whys, but we can have the confidence that it's actually happening because all of this is taking place in the context of the mercy of God. The mercy of God. So think about submitting yourselves to the governing authorities. What do we learn? Our attitudes need to reflect the fact that these are ministers of God. Number two, what is number two? <laughs> number two is recognizing that they exist for our good. And how do we learn to see the things that they're doing for our good and not just complain about the things that we see aren't for our good? And number three, we are set free from having to pursue justice ourselves and set free to love our enemies because we're not the one responsible for justice. God is that they exist as agents of God for the sake of bringing justice now that points us forward to ultimately justice will be meted out in the end. Yes, there are times when, when we are going to have to make a choice of who, which authority we are going to obey when we have one that's telling us to do something that the other one is telling us not to do. And it may well be that we have to face the sword as a result. But even that, even that, is born out of the mercy of God. So as believers, we can look different from the rest of the world with our view towards the governing authorities. And Jesus is the prime example of how that is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are a sovereign God, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that all authority rests in you that you have instituted authorities on this earth for our good. And even when those authorities violate your jurisdiction, violate your instruction, the parameters of, of the authority that you've given to them, even then you work your mercy for the sake of our good. 
Lord, as we come to this table, we recognize that Jesus is the ultimate example of how that has taken place, that because He faced injustice of someone violating the bounds of their authority, it results in salvation for us whose faith is in Him. Lord, help us to walk differently from those in the world, trusting in You and showing that trust by our submission to the governing authorities over us. In Jesus' name, amen.